Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Hello. I reached out to you to ask you for some ideas as to what my new podcast should be. I was a little bit sort of like scratching my head and trying to work out what shall I talk about. I didn't think I had anything interesting to talk about. So I thought, I knew I wanted to reach out and say hello to people, but um, what was I going to talk about? The last one was a bit gloomy. Thank you to everybody who, all those wonderful people who reached out to uh, ask how I was doing. Um, I was doing absolutely fine, but thank you very much. It is a tough time for all of us, and I think the avalanche of, uh, no pun intended, I have just been in the mountains, the avalanche of um, questions so um, relevant to today that I've been met with are just incredible. I, I was kind of hoping to do a podcast on... Um, on beer and wine and um, silly stories, just to cheer everybody up. But I am utterly overwhelmed with the quality of questions that have come in from people, well-known players, less-known players, students, and I feel incredibly privileged that you would consider my opinion worthy. So there are I've put together a podcast with this based on three um, questions, three points, three aspects that have been raised by uh, Matthew Braxtat, uh, Tim Riordan, and Tony Bura. And I think that's kind of like a very nice three movement um, podcast. It's probably going to be quite a long one, but the the questions that I've been asked are just. Unfortunately, we live in a day where we're supposed to say, oh my goodness, I'm just so overwhelmed by the level of, but really, the, you have, my wife and I have been discussing these questions since they've been coming in, you know, and we're just so enthused by them. And I may at some point bring my wife in to um, interview her because she's absolutely extraordinary as far as what the future is going to look like. Um, so we've got a three movement performance here and it starts off a little bit dark. I didn't want to do that, but I think it's necessary. I think we, in order to have right, you need to have left. In order to have up, you need to have down. We need a balance. So straight in, Matthew Bragstad. Folks have been talking more and more about the lack of work for people graduating with the expectation of performing professionally. I'm speaking mostly of the US where I'm from. The discussion often revolves around how graduates can use the soft skills of their degree to find success in other fields. The thing is, how do people just give up being a professional musician after sacrificing so much towards that end? When is it time to hang it up and regulate it to hobby status? Matthew, you've grasped the nettle as we say in England, you are dealing with the dreaded aspect that none of us 
want to address. So thank you. Let's look at this. You know, and so much of this is seen as a binary success or failure situation. And I think we need to remove that. When you see things um, as success or failure, in my opinion, there is only one possible outcome, and that's failure. I would ask you, Matthew, and everybody else who are asking them this question, the reason why you are so good at what you do, is it DNA? Or have you learned to pursue your goals so well that it's going to serve you whatever you choose to do? Either way, it makes no difference. I say quite clearly now, let's look at, for want of a better word, let's look at failure because we all want to do what we want to do as musicians. And uh, you are brilliant, people. You are special. You are the special ones. We musicians have something that other people in society do not have. The smart business leaders know that, and they're looking for us. More of which to come later. <laughs> Whatever you choose to do in life, you're going to be successful. Please know that. And the drive and the brilliance that has led you to where you are today can be transferred. Sounds like I'm being negative, doesn't it? Well, it's not, actually. There's really a positive way of, of looking at it. Let's go back right to the beginning of this as to how we operate in the university, in the conservatoire, or even on a private basis. I think when we're developing as children and we're teaching young people, we always need to make them perfectly aware of where they are in their goal. I always sit down with somebody who I'm going to work with. First of all, I never choose somebody who I do not think I can achieve their goals for them. Can't always be successful. None of us can always be successful. But I always back myself and the person in front of me to achieve what they want to achieve. And then, in the same way as when um, a work person comes into your house and says, you know, okay, you need, uh, you need this re wall reinforcing, I think we should put a new roof on or whatever, usually more than is actually necessary. Um, and it's going to cost this and we're going to need to do this, and it's going to take this long, and we're going to do it then. I think that's an initial discussion that all too infrequently takes place between a student and a teacher, or a student and an institution. The identification of joint goals and a plan of action to achieve that. And the student needs to be under no uncertain terms as to where they are. How can you go on a journey if you don't know where you're starting from? And so I think very much there is this, and I, I'm considered a bit of a, want of a better word, a hard man for taking this attitude, but that I think it's the most caring way. And it can never be done in an egotistical, domineering kind of way, but it's like, okay, in my professional opinion, dear sir, madam, this is 
where I think you are. Where would you like to go? Okay, these are your goals, these are your aims. Let's see what we need to do to get you there. And this is, I think it's gonna take this long and I think you need to do this. And there will be certain marker posts along the way and I will tell you if I think you are getting there. So if someone, if someone sits in front of me and says, you know, well, Joe, unless he's not getting any younger, I want his job. <laughs> it does happen, you know. I do hear that. Uh, and and I, it always makes me smile, not just inwardly. I always think, well, good for you. Great. You have your goals. And I can then say, well, in my professional opinion, this is where you are. And this is, you know, you're falling short in these regards, these regards. This is really strong. This we need to develop. Um, so we always know what you want to do. I have people who come in and say very occasionally, unfortunately, I want to be, I want to specialize in new music and I want to be a, do experimental stuff and be a soloist. And I love it. And of course, you know, not infrequently, I get people who come in and say, I want to be a teacher. And I say, well, great, there's nothing better. Let's see if we can develop those skills. And so, the mourning process that you have inve invested, in some cases more than one decade, in a singular pursuit of a singular career does not all of a sudden, Matthew, just say, result in you saying, I'm giving up. You don't give up. You never give up. This is a vocational thing. I'm not a trombone player because people pay me. That's a process I've been going through over the last few months. And, uh, and I, I was really kind of quite, quite grumpy with myself when I realized it was an aspect of it. Well, if you don't want me, if you're not gonna pay me, hang on a minute, I'm a trombonist. That's who I am, that's what I do. You know what? One of the legends of snooker, this is one of these amazing English games, where it's a bit like pool, but really difficult. Um, the table is four times bigger and the pockets are smaller and the balls are smaller and the rules are more complicated. Of course they are. It's an English game. And <laughs> speaking of which, I'm actually now not watching England against India on the television so I can do this podcast. So I've said to myself, I've got to really concentrate and do it right so I can go and watch the cricket. Um, where was I? Ah, yes. Snooker, legends of snooker, a guy called Steve Davis. He won the world championship, I think, seven times in the 80s and maybe early 90s. And he kept playing, you know, and he was a commentator, a legend. And he dropped out of the top 50 and then he dropped out of the top 100. And he kept turning up to do the qualifying tournaments to get into the to qualifying competitions to get into the major tournaments. He kept failing and failing and failing. And someone said to him, why, you've fallen from grace, you know? The guy around the corner's beating you. <laughs> you know, the guy at the local pub beats you now. Why are you doing it? And he said, well, I never did this for the success. I did it because I love snooker. I'm a snooker player. That's who I am. That's what I do. When I get out of bed in the morning, I practice. And then I go and take part in tournaments. And uh, whether I win or lose, it's who I am. It's what I do. Now, okay, by that time, he didn't have um, issues such as paying bills, but you see where I'm going with this. 
So I think the decision to be a musician, the decision to be a uh, instrumentalist, is a vocational decision. It's who you are. It's what you do. And I know that whilst I have strength in my body to hold a trombone, and whilst I have air in my lungs to put it into the trombone, I'm going to do it because I love it. So I think those two things, we all know there are no guarantees, but we can get a good idea, an estimate, of how remote our chances are <laughs> of uh, making our goals reality, as long as we have that. And, and it cannot creep into paranoia. I've had cases where students have said, oh, how am I getting on? Am I on target? Am I? And it's like, hey, look, we have this chat every six months or every year to see whether we're achieving our goals. It's not a weekly discussion. <laughs> You're doing fine now. Let's just work, okay? But I think that's the first thing, is to be in a realistic understanding of your situation. And then the other thing is to be very clear as to why you are doing this. And then it's not like, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, we're going to get there, I'm going to get there, I'm going to, oh, no one wants me, okay, I've failed. That we have to cut out, that has to go, that cannot happen. We have to remove the taboo subject of not, in inverted commas, making it and discussing other options. Remember, you're, you're amazing. You don't realise the skills that you're developing and you should be looking at this all the time. I think in many ways, Corona has been a bit of a blessing. I've had some, I have wonderful students who are very smart. Some of them are now are coming to me and saying, I realise I'm a trombonist, but I might actually need to deal with practicalities as well because there's no guarantee that there's going to be a profession for us in the future. I actually happen to disagree, but, you know, students are coming to me and saying that. So I'm looking at um, how to earn money in different ways. And it sounds like we're giving in to failure. It's not. It's making the most of your skills. You know, we need to find a situation where, rather than falling off the horse, we're changing horses between one and another. And maybe in many cases, what we do as um, musicians is only going to be part of our life and part of our earnings, and then we'll go into different areas and, hey, I'm not going to come here and tell you what it is. You're brilliant, creative people. That's who we are. But I think that consideration needs to start, you know, in our teenage years. It's It's... Um, almost like, you know, the old days where your parents would say, you know, you're going to get yourself trained for a proper job because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> but it, it, the world has changed so much and you need to be looking at the transference of skills to remove the pressure from you needing to realise your number one goal. Um, and to realise that looking at realism being realistic at our chances, is not an excuse to give up. It's time to concentrate on parallel different skills. Do not neglect your other interests. Um, so that, I think, is what I would say. And then, I don't think, Matthew, that's directly 
addressed what people in the current system situation now can do. I'm going back to how we can approach this more positively in the, in the future. Um, but I would say to you, Matthew, you know, I, I've had students who've really doubted whether they want to do this. Not now, I mean years ago, 10 years ago. And I have one, and I'm not going to name him because he's very successful now, who decided he was just going to go home and be a television, or back in the day, you know, like cable TV salesman. And within six months, he was the uh, head, of, <laughs> head of his company for the city. It's easy, guys, it's easy. I've had business people, doctors, architects, HR people who listen to these podcasts and say, you guys are just way ahead of us. We, we have got so much to learn from you. So I think, first of all, take the worry away. Look at your parallel skills. Realize if you become amateur, what a horrible word. If you decide not to do that professionally, it doesn't mean to see you giving up the trombone or giving up music. It means you're gonna develop your skills in other areas. And I'll be really honest with you folks, the last year has left a big vacuum in our lives and I'm on the point of filling it. So I have, I have decisions to make and it's not like, but it's positive. Matthew, it's positive, sit with it. Just be there, consider other options. It is gonna be fine, it's gonna be just great. Sound like Donald Trump, don't I? Oh, oops. And um, I am in a position now where I have so many options available to me, not contracts on the table, but it's like so many different directions. I think, oh, wow, I really want to do that. I really want to do this. And I've got so many different ideas and so many completely, well, not completely away from music, but taking the skills of music into other areas and people are really interested in it. And it's not like, oh, this is second best. It's not, I'm getting out of bed and thinking, yes, this is amazing. So, I know I didn't directly answer your question, Matthew, but I hope I did something to make everybody right now feel better. I feel really great about the future and we're gonna to come to that. Okay, and that leads us on to another hot potato, Tim Riordan. Um, ably assisted by Tiago Cavallo and Sean Roish, and even Matthew Guilford. Right, here we go. How bad pedagogical ideas perpetuate because a teacher in their 50s might have learnt from someone in their 50s making some ideas woefully outdated. How about a catch-up for younger teachers on better information we have gleaned over the past couple of decades of improved teaching methods combined with, of course, tried and true info that will likely never change. Uh, Tiago Cavallo pipes in, um, what a topic, put it together with misconceptions coming from obsolete pedagogical strategies leading to performance to the brink of developing, developing strong performance injuries and like that there's even more perceptions and perspectives. For example, there are so great pedagogical resources such as mental imagery that when they're not well applied can lead to wrong interpretations and severe problems, i.e. diaphragm concepts of uh, concepts of tension, push, strength, and other concepts of the non-functional theories of no pain, no gain. Don't like that one. There's a lots of concepts in this matter to be dis discussed. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna, gonna I'm gonna try and do this, guys. Um, 
first of all, yeah, it's massive. This, what you're, this is a massive, massive, massive subject. And what you're talking about is the difference between good and bad pedagogy. Um, I am, I'll say publicly now, I'm launching a um, subscription-based community um, based uh, probably, you know, around yeah, May, June time. I already have 10 or 12 hours of content and I want to make it accessible to everybody. There's going to be levels that's free. There's going to be stuff that's really at a price that anybody in Peru or Ukraine can afford. And then there'll be a kind of like a teacher's aspect as well, um, where it's going to be a little bit more expensive. Um, the reason um, for that, it's not, and again, going back to the first issue, this is not the kind of, this is not the um, kind of like, oh, failure, oh, our profession's dying, right, I have to go online. And no, no, people, realize something. The recording companies, right now, without you, they have empty databases. They have no content. You know where I'm going with this. It's revolutionary talk. Oh, we have the content. It's ours. It belongs to us, or should belong to us. So this, everything that I've worked for, everything that I've tried to learn through questioning myself, through struggling over the years, is my product, it's my content. And I want to have my own cottage industry, little corner, which will be constantly updated, which will be interactive, which will, I will have literally my community and um, will be there for you um, to deal with perhaps even live seminars um, as part of the community thing, dealing with these things in detail because Tim and, and, uh, and Tiago, you've, you've, re you've raised um, 50 subjects there. We, we can't do this in a podcast, you know, this is so much stuff to get through. So, if I was to put my, so anyway, of that there's more to come, come later. And it's uh, following the basic business principle of have an idea that you believe in and the money will follow. And if it's a good idea, I might make some money out of it. And if it's not, I won't. But I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it because I want to do it and because I think it's really a good idea. Um, Tim, if I, Tim and Tiago, if I were to put my um, lawyers, my attorney's hat on for a minute, Tim, I'd want to say, well, could you be more specific? What do you mean? Now, obviously, there are 19 hearts on this comment that you've made, so a lot of people um, feel very strongly as you do. Um, so I would say, well, what exactly do you mean? What bad techniques? And the reason why I would ask you that question is, in my experience, there are, no, no, no I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say no, there are some bad systems, and I'm not going to name them here, but basically I see the difference between good and bad teachers. I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embarrass somebody. There's um, a guy in Spain called Danny Perpignan. He, and uh, he, he teaches 100, not 160, but he teaches very much in a different direction to the way I teach. And he's damned excellent at it. He's fantastic. 
So I think we need to be very careful with right and wrong because right and wrong depends on the student in front of us. And as you know, Tim, the best teachers are different teachers for everybody who walks into the room. And I see Tiago, I see you going down the route of diaphragm systems and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I teach people to stay as relaxed as possible down there because the abdominal muscles work when we breathe in and they relax when we exhale. Yeah, sure. So I don't teach, in inverted commas, conventional support methods, no. And, um, but I'm not going to go down the route of saying, well, anyone who does is an idiot or wrong. Um, you, there's plenty of that nonsense going around on Facebook. Because you know what, this one in ten kid that I see, that I say, well, you know, again, just keep direction of air, push the air a little bit. Because they are so flaccid, for the want of a better word, if they're so, they're so um, uh, relaxed that um, they, they really need to work more than that. Now, okay, there's different ways of doing it. You know, you can, and I'm going down a rabbit hole here as well. Now that said, um, Tim, I, I suspect we probably agree. <laughs> so I just wanted to put all that in as a kind of rough disclaimer, as it were. And you say like someone in their 50s, um, learning from someone who was in their 50s. Well, that's basically just a bad way of teaching, isn't it? Because just simply repeating what you've been taught is not the way to do anything, is it? That's not a teacher, that's just, you might, your teacher might as well have just written a book and you just give it to every student you get. So I think I'm aware that one of the advantages that I've had as a teacher is I never really had a teacher. Um, I, you know, I, I had my first job when I was 18, 19 years old in an orchestra and I stupidly didn't carry on studying and I never, I never had a trombone teacher till I was 14. I saw Dudley Bright a few times between the age of 14 and 18, I mean a few times. And then I saw Peter Gain a bit at the Guildhall School of Music for one term. Um, and but I never really, I was never really at the foot of a great master receiving the words of wisdom. And so it means over the years I've had to glean the information from wherever and, and I wouldn't say work it out for myself because, you know, but um, it tries as intelligently as possible to weave the results of my own um, research with the wisdom of others into a whole, you know, W-H-O-L-E, whole that is my if you like my teaching philosophy. And for that reason, um, I'm extremely flexible in my approach along most lines. I would, to back up what you're saying, Tim, is I would um, mention something that is, is, does concern me pedagogically. And that is the um, teaching philosophy of Arnold Jacobs. And that's not, that's not that um, I disagree with his teaching. And you know me well enough to know that if I did, I'd bloody say it. Um, he um, has been the one who I have turned to when I've been in the biggest mess. When I've been going through a kind of like a bit of a plane crisis. It does happen every now and then. It hasn't happened for a while. 
<laughs> and I mean longer than the last year. <laughs> um, the older I've got, the better I've got at working my own and other people's issues out. So, so I do hold him in the highest of esteem and in actual fact to support, like you say, someone just doing what their teacher did with them. The number of times I've seen the scenario where Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so never discussed the embouchure with me or anything physical, therefore I will not discuss anything physical with my students. Yeah, the only problem there is, in my opinion, Arnold Jacobs had an encyclopedic, probably the greatest knowledge of what was happening physically within the subject before him uh, than any of us who have tried to teach before or since didn't tell you about it. Doesn't mean he didn't know what was happening and he didn't understand what was happening and it doesn't mean to say that what he was actually doing was trying to work out the puzzle to fix your problem without you knowing it was a problem. <laughs> to give you positive solutions. Now isn't that wonderful? The only problem is we have a generation of teachers who think we don't talk about the embouchure or anything physical. It's like we don't think about it. it just, my teacher never did it. I don't do it with you. And so, well, okay, let's go and study with cellists then. If you're only going to talk about music, you know, why, why don't we go talk to a musician? <laughs> Sorry. And I'm going to back this up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to embarrass somebody here. And someone's going to, you, you're going to know who it is. Possibly, um, you know, someone who I hold in extremely high esteem. And I've got into a bit of a pickle as we say, with a student and uh, sent, said, look, uh, <clears throat> would you mind if I sent you this video of someone playing? Can you tell me what you're saying? And so he said, sure, send it to me. And he wrote this series of messages that identified, let's say there were six physical things that needed addressing within the subjects playing. And he identified in no uncertain terms all six of those and then picked out the one that was causing the other five and then suggested his route as to how to fix it. But under no uncertain terms, you must not tell the student this. Now, I'd worked out, actually, I'll be honest, I did really well. I'd got five of them. But he'd picked another one out and suggested which way he would move forwards. And um, so this idea of song and wind, yes, it's fantastic. It's absolutely, you know, please don't think I'm, like I say, there are no good and bad systems, just good and bad teachers. And so that person has an encyclopedic physical understanding of the ins and outs of brass playing but doesn't talk to his or her students about that in that way. And maybe as a teaching profession, we're failing our students when we're teaching people to teach. You know, it should be the full, full disclosure of, look, this is the situation. At some point, when someone's secure enough in their own playing and is about to go into teaching, say, look, this is the physicality of it, and this is how we get around it without discussing it. So this generation after generation, of gener after generation of we don't talk about the physical, it only confuses the student. Yeah, it probably does, yeah, if you do it in a certain way, yes. And we've all been there. Listen, good and bad teachers, and even good teachers are not always good. We all make mistakes. 
and I've just turned 57. It's I reckon I'm a good teacher. I've been working on it now for 35 years. It's not often you'll hear me say that. It's taken me a long time. Teaching is a lifelong pursuit, and you have to be open to not just regurgitating what your teacher told you, and not just, um, you know, and, 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 and not just sort of like thinking you got it worked out, and there is one system. There needs to be a hundred systems. Now, along that line, I mean, so if you want me to go along the uh, specific uh, root of good and bad use of tongue, good and bad use of should we discuss the throat, actually I will discuss it, no we shouldn't, um, <laughs> there you go, said something definite, and as to, you know, the use of diaphragm support, etc, etc. And, you know, Tiago, you say, you know, there are so many great pedagogical resources such as mental imagery that then when they're not well applied can lead to wrong, inter wrong interpretations and severe problems. Diaphragm concepts, tension, push, strength, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the internet is on the one hand a wonderful thing. And I've had people say to me, you know, when you do these coaching videos, are you not worried that you're giving away all of your acumen, you're giving all of your information away? And he's like, no, I don't mind at all. It's not the information that's rocket science. Not that any form of trombone teaching should be rocket science, but it's the information's not complicated. How you apply it is. How you read the person in front of you and know exactly how to use all of this knowledge that you have is the complicated thing. So just pulling things off the internet, you're probably going to like do yourself more harm um, than good. I mean, I, I feel like I'm being drawn into, Tiago, discussing some of these things that you've mentioned there, but like I say, that's a big community discussion and I wouldn't do it justice in, in two or three, three minutes, um, you know, on, the, on, on a on a podcast like this. Um, so, as usual, I answer your questions with more questions than, than answers. Um, I did touch on a couple of specific things that, yeah, the diet, you know, the abdominal muscles work. When you take the air in, you relax when you go out. And I did hint at the fact that, you know, no pain, no gain. Oh, for goodness sake, come on, we should be through that by now. Um, and, but it's such a massive, massive, massive subject and I am going to do probably as part of this thing a Ian Bowsfield on pedagogy um, section of it which is going to be massive because I am obsessed with it and I'm totally immersed in it so there you go I've rambled but Tim you done that's it you know and Tiago fantastic uh, Matthew that video that you put up uh, Matthew Guilford on um, how the abdominal muscles work yeah <laughs> yeah, right. It's good. <laughs> and now, a big one. The biggest question I've ever read out on my podcasts from Tony Bura. And I, I'm going to read it out because I want you to know the brilliant people that listen to my podcasts and engage with me. And like I say, it's very modern day to be so, I'm so flattered that these, no, I genuinely are. Well, listen to this, and I'm going to take this one on. There are some great young players out there. The talent is unquestionably remarkable, taking the trombone to new levels and new norms. Well, maybe we can discuss that. However, are they getting the diverse teaching their talent, fees, and time deserve, meeting the demands of a rapidly changing culture? 
Are these minds challenged and ethically prepared within conservatoires for the working world outside? Not a new question. As students graduate, many hear platitudes spoken like mantras lamenting a lack of work without offering realistic strategies to create work. Many are encouraged to accept the new norm of soft skill diversification. Are conservatoires failing them as departments decline to negotiate dynamic change? In other words, are music conservatoires at risk of becoming one giant, albeit brilliant, homologous echo chamber? I'll have to look that word up, unless it's a spelling mistake. Are we afraid, see what I mean about the people who write in here? <laughs> are we afraid to reach out, try new things, experiment, explore new avenues of performance? Can we interpolate design artistry, artistry and technology while preparing students to holistically adapt and examine their creativity without recourse to compromise their talents? The 60s and 70s were well-documented periods of experimentation. He lists all of the places that experimented, yes. And, you know, now we have, you know, now we have Earcam, for example. You know, Pierre Boulez helped set that one up. Numerous projects that extend to do extended performance, such as Sarah Reed's MIGSI, the Motor Trumpet Jenkins, Eros. I won't go on. Are these alternative approach approaches taught in music colleges? Are there authors invited to lecture at conservatoires, giving students more food for thought, or are most students left to discover them by chance? If at all, while spending most of their time mastering the same repertoires 30, 40, 50 years ago, yes, that's right, good point. Are such experiments downplayed as interesting novelties? Maybe. Certainly universities are more inclined to explore and think outside the box. There is a time and place for everything. As a collective, is trombone pedagogy within conservatoire culture too cliquey? University education embraced a multidiscipline model years ago, encouraged students to look at other disciplines to formulate unique ideas. We live in a challenging time for artist, I get artistic identity, and students need the tools to adapt. Where failure and success do not come down to an esoteric singularity, there is no such thing out there. Is it time for conservatoires and their trombone programs to become less close-knit and more diverse? If this is already happening, then I'm hopelessly out of touch, so please excuse the longest Facebook post that you've ever written. Tony, there are a couple of people who have written in and said, actually, it's not the longest post you've ever written. Um, so, but people, I want you to read that out. This is just wonderful. Tony Burrow was a student of the Guildhall School of Music back in 1753, and um, went through the traditional standard education and he's now experimenting and studying electronic um, techniques. He's put some stuff on Facebook that have been absolutely remarkable. I've reached out to him. I think he's, his artistic output is incredible. And uh, I, I wish to say at this point, he's not paying me to say this. Um, <laughs> right. Tony, I think we're at the cusp of something bigger than what we've had before. Um, before Corona. What you're saying is, is the music profession led by conservatoires at the same point? Are we acting like Kodak did in 1990 when they decided there would never be a replacement for photographic film? <laughs> the rest, as they say, is history. They missed the boat and everything went digital, of course. Are we doing that? And that's the question you ask. And to your last question, are conservatoires, institutions doing this? Um, if so, you apologize, so do I. Uh, I don't 
know every instance. I know that it is widely discussed. And I guess, Tony, you're talking about the major UK institutions here. Um, and I don't know. I'm kind of, I hope they are. Um, so I guess we're both saying the same thing, you and I. Um, I think the new future lies in NFTs, non-fungible tokens and blockchain. It's the empowering, embodying, moving forwards of our profession. Mark my words. Get your 10-year diary, folks, and write into it 10 years from now. We will be dealing with virtual reality. Students, audience members will have headsets on and they will not be present for performances or lessons. The opportunity that presents itself to us for performance, you know, combined with education, is the beginning of something new. Nick Scholl, if you're still listening to this, you wanted the answer. Here you have it. So that's our conservatoires bringing these people in to show the lead. I doubt it, actually, I don't think so. Not to, not to the extent that they need to. These institutions are very big. They take a while to move. When they do move, they move in a big way. I would say right now, at the very least, in order to complete their course of study, every student must have done the basic of simple things, and that is upload at least 10 TikTok videos and assess their success and failure. And I think that must be the very, very, very least that we should be able to do um, and yet you know I think conservatoires at the point of like courses on how to set up a website etc etc you know I think that's where we are I might be again I might be speaking seriously out of turn after corona there's going to be a huge jump and we as musicians must not miss the boat like Kodak did um, with the film I would now speak in support, Tony, of the education that you got, another one that I, to be honest, give. And again, I'm going to quote somebody when I heard them do um, an interview for a job. I was on the panel. And the great, the questions came. We had all of the different diversified members of the jury, from research, from early music, from whatever. And the first question was, you know, what do you see on research? And it was kind of like a mumbling, yeah, well, we were always involved in research, of course, research, great. What about early music? Well, yeah, I'm open to everything, yeah, of course. And then it was like, how over your career have you seen young people change? And how have you seen them need to change due to the ever-increasing, changing demands of the world outside? And there was a long pause, almost an embarrassingly long pause. And the answer was, young people were, are, and always will be young people with the same hopes, ambitions, drives, and aspirations. I will not be teaching them any advanced techniques. I will not be teaching them about all these different genres. After they finish studying with me, they will be able to identify excellence in themselves 
and in others and how to pursue it. They will know how to control that. They will know how to create beauty and control what they're doing. And they will have total musical and emotional command over what they're doing. That's a bit of a, I don't think that's an exact quote, but it was something along those lines. After they have finished studying with me, whatever they choose to go into, they will be able to succeed in it. At which point there was another long silence in the room because that cut straight through the question, didn't it? So there is a case to be made to Tony, and, and I, I make this case extremely strongly whilst loving what you do, um, and that's no empty platitude. I do believe in teaching young people to identify perfection. No, there isn't such a thing. You know what I mean? Excellence of sound, articulation, and how to have basic control over their instrument. If you push young people down the route of alternative techniques, alternative musicalities, new ways of thinking, before they've actually got their foundations set, you're going to do more harm than good. That's my professional opinion. And I am an open-minded, you know, adventurous musician who listens to everything and absolutely would see the same artists as being amazing as you do, Tony. Um, and so that's the first thing I would say, as like a big um, caveat whilst agreeing with what you say, is look, we've got to make sure, because if we run too far down the road, it's not going to work. Because first of all, we have to have control of our instruments. And we have to go through the history of how we evolved to this point, really. Um, I think there has to be this kind of solera effect of something from each era. We, we as musicians are a product of every generation that's gone before us, and we need to pass that education on to the student in front of us before we move on to other things. And then we, we encourage them to just run wild and do whatever they want. Right, so let me go back. Ever demanding, changing cultures. All right, yeah. This question is too long to read through again. I think you're right, the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, particularly you know, in France, led by, I guess, who, Pierre Boulez, was much more adventurous than it is now. Should these people, these experimental musicians, be being brought into conservatoires? Yes. Should they be the only meal on the plate? No. Should we be bringing people in from all other walks of life? Yes. Should we be bringing business people in to show musicians how they can change horses to fulfill their talent in every direction? Yes. Should members of Notil Brass be consulting in conservatories? Yes. Should out there way out, and I keep hearing new trombone players with new techniques. Should they be giving classes at these conservatoires? Yes. Should you be showing what you've learned in the conservatoires? Should you be showing your experimental stuff with electronics? Yes. You know why? Because students need the, the spark. Never mind, Tony, preparing them for what's out there. It's about showing them what they could do. Because 
you go, in, you go into the academy and do a class and show what you do. Folks, take a look at what Tony does, Tony Bora. Look it up. It's amazing. You, I guarantee you, one of them will jump on your boss and will go with you. So careful, it might take work off you. <laughs> so, um, whilst totally agreeing with you, yes, we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We mustn't, it's a ridiculous saying, but I think you know what I mean. You know, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the basic marker posts of musical and technical uh, instrumental excellence need to be there. But I am, but, but yes, do I get bored of students walking in and saying, I, I want a job? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. You know, is it refreshing when someone walks in and says, I'm so-and-so and this is what I do and this is what I want to do and it's different. I love it. Do you know how many times I hear the bloody David in the Mozart rock room? Actually, it's my own fault. I've set it for a competition, haven't I? Ha! <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I am going to... I think if this, if this part of um, the podcast gets a lot of positive feedback, I will interview my wife, uh, Mrs. Blockchain, um, and... and um, get her ideas on it because she's much more out there on the cutting edge of all of these things. In the meantime, if anyone is um, studying non-fungible tokens and believes in them, please contact me and um, let's talk about that. All right, so there we go. Thank you so much for all these questions. I've talked for about 50 minutes. So this is the longest one ever. There are a load more that I'm going to go into and uh, thank you all so much. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff.